when we were doing these versus guides, I feel like it came up pretty naturally. We're like trying to find the ways you check the faction. And um, a lot of these factions have built in what we're calling punitive mechanisms. Uh, thanks, Garrick, for that uh, name. Trying to just identify how certain factions' engines like kind of like self-sabotage in a way, or when you attack them in a certain way, it slows down their engine in a very specific way. God, Garrick feels like just like a medical doctor of root. Yeah. I feel like punitive mechanisms is like, <laughs> you should just say funny bone, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we tried to come up, I was like looking for like a hot, cool phrase to use, but Garrick's punitive mechanisms does feel very scientific- like very ludological. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that one out over kneecaps or kneecaps. I was just going to say kneecap feels very appropriate. Yeah, we could call it kneecaps. I'm down for whatever. All right. Well, I'm let's easy. say punitive mechanism is the like Latin name for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we understand it to be, but its common name is going to be kneecap. Love it. How is this not just a, a one section from each of the versus guides, right? It kind of is, but I think it. what we gain by doing this is kind of putting it in context with other factions things. I feel like what happens in an, a game of Root is people argue about how their position is worse than somebody else's. And here we're going to kind of break down when you attack someone and, and trigger their punitive mechanisms, or you do kneecap them, kind of where that shakes out with the other factions. Yeah, trying to create a like very objective list of specifically vague scenarios and yes. their their <laughs> relative absolute weight. Exactly. Okay, great. And I guess it won't always have to take context in a versus way like the other ones do. Right. Yeah, I also like that it's sort of holding up this uh, section of like faction anatomy. Yeah. And then doing just a, a like cross section of that and trying to look at them all next to each other. Right. Like it's it's a something you don't always get to think about, I guess, on your own. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so much so that we no one had a name for what this was, you know, <laughs> right. because it seems so spe- faction specific. But we see that there's a lot of commonality and a lot of factions have these kind of mechanisms. There's a loose screw in each of their houses and you just got to find it and shake it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a cork in the bottom of each of their rowboats <laughs> <laughs> put there intentionally. <laughs> yeah so they don't boat too fast switching topics kyle you enlightened me this week on something about the chess championships because i was asking you about all the draws that occur because correct me if i'm wrong but like in the past three or four years the championship games have largely been mostly draws right well yes famously the Previous World Chess Championship between Magnus Carlsen, world number one from Norway, and Fabiana Caruana, uh, who at the time was the number two in the world uh, from the United States, went to school in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, like myself, as a matter of fact. <laughs> we didn't know each other. Um, that match was 14 classical games. All of them were draws. <laughs> and they were like highly technical. You know, some of them were kind of tense, but it was a very dry championship. This one, on the other hand, has been full of fireworks. Right. Well, so this led me to ask you, like, well, isn't a large chunk of chess, quote unquote, solved then? Because, like, if they're drawing, they all know how to perfectly counter whatever engagement they're in. Therefore, it seems like a finite amount of options. Right. And I, you can describe it. I would love for you to describe it the way you did to me. But you enlightened me into, like, what is essentially the new meta, which is that. 
draws are kind of part of the strategy because the draws are so complex in their moves and what is perfect that slight alterations might occur where the GMs, the grandmasters, we call them, will mess with each other very slightly enough to open up maybe a seam or something, some weak point within the assumed plan of how that game's going to go. I have to imagine this is like a nightmare scenario for, for our grandmasters. Uh, so in, in chess, there are some pretty common ways to just make a draw with your opponent. And th- there are occasions when that's like really useful. Like if both players in a tournament scenario just need a draw to like secure a good position or to advance or whatever, uh, they might play a really dry line that leads to it. That is a known draw. However, because GMs are crafty and they like want to surprise each other, they will occasionally come up with little sidelines and uh, do things in a different order slightly that makes things different yeah. and surprise their opponent in such a way that it could lead to an imbalance that makes it not a draw anymore. It's crazy. Um, we, we didn't see that as much in this chess championship. Um, I, I wanted to, I looked this up after we talked, Jake, when you mentioned is chess solved? I, I decided to actually like look into that question a little bit because I feel like the anecdotal response is like, no, there's an infinite number of positions just about. Or like, there's more possibilities than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> um, and that, while that is literally true, I think in practical experience, uh, that is not quite the case. So because we have computer engines that are quite strong, there's this thing called the table base of endgames, where in every conceivable position with seven pieces or less, Chess is solved. With seven pieces or less uh, yes. total on the board or on each side? I think total on the board. Yeah, okay. Which, I mean, isn't that much when you consider that. Right. You know, it's it's down to the bare bones. It's the king and a few others, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. like end games are solved. And then to a certain extent, like openings are kind of solved too, mm-hmm. right? Or at least the theory runs incredibly deep on like almost every opening. Because in both of those cases, the variables are much lower. Right. So the beginning of a game and the end of a game are like, you can math it out pretty good. Uh, It's just that there's that stuff that happens in the middle. You just never know where it's going to go quite. Yeah. I just love the idea that draws are part of the meta. A draw being no one wins, right? Which is crazy to think about. But what happened in, which when I texted you about this, it was on, I believe it was game six, which just broke the record for longest game in the world championships ever. It was an eight hour game or something like that. And part of the, yeah, Sam's face right now. (laughs) Uh, They, part of the discussion afterwards was the winner, uh, Magnus Carlson is his name, mentioned that, well, I kind of wanted to draw it out because I wanted us both to be really tired at the moment of important decisions. And it's like, oh, that's a great new meta concept is to wear your opponent down. Yeah, at first when you guys are talking about draws all the time, I'm like, it's like soccer. Like nobody wants to concede a goal. And then it's just like everyone's playing defense for 90 minutes and then something has to give. But now it's making me think of boxing of just like taking so many blows and you know just tiring out your opponent i mean there is a serious component of that going on especially in in long games like these this is actually a great example of this game you mentioned that went to 136 moves of what i'm talking about here so in the end game uh there's actually a table base for that end game and so if you look at the evaluation bar uh given by computer engines that are analyzing the position they gave it as a dead draw zero zero 
but you give it to a human player under a time pressure who's been playing a game for seven hours. <laughs> How on earth are you going to find some obscure move with your queen to somehow draw this game against the best player in the world? You right. know what I mean? Like, I just, you, I don't even for a second imagine that I could get even close to finding a move like that. Dude, I'm um, making mistakes on my root async games all the time. I have three days to make the decision and somehow I end up trying to squeeze it into like 90 seconds in the middle of my day and I just make a <laughs> dumb mistake. Well, and these guys did too. They made some what are called blunders in chess, which is like the most brutal way of saying mistake. Yeah. But like, Wait, they're called blunders? They're called yeah. blunders. That's what you, you call it. That You have to brutal. wear a dunce cap. <laughs> but, you rube? Yeah. Well, but I don't blame them in hour six when they make a blunder, but it, it happens. And so they, these, even though these guys are grandmasters, they do make quote unquote mistakes. Blunders. Yeah. The the judge, the the ref, the fide arbiter has to come out and paint their nose red. It's very <laughs> embarrassing. Well, it's like baseball. You know how like baseball they count errors as yes. just the stat. The only like... sport that counts them, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> To the score of the game or anything. There's Does just something a mark. To the pride of one man out there. <laughs> yeah. Everyone go- knows, hey, that was James. James made the error. <laughs> hey, James, you're up on the board. Look. <laughs> Not in the column you want, though. <laughs> Remember when I you caught that ball with your face? Yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't Woodland Boar Machine, so we'll move on from chess. And baseball. <laughs> and baseball. <laughs> Two things no one here cares about. And instead, talk about a little bit of Root News. It's Root News. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, everyone listening to this podcast has made Root News. Uh, today, uh, Jake informed us that we have over 50,000 downloads for this podcast. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations, gents. Yeah, feels good. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and downloading, or at least at least downloading. Maybe not listening. <laughs> You're right. Thank we you only know the downloads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the scoffs and the I don't think that's right. Don't yeah. show up on the mm-hmm. stat sheet here. So. <laughs> but uh, we really appreciate you all. And um, when we hit a hundred thousand, uh, we'll make a announcement double as big as this one. Yeah, we'll have to do something for a hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like play the game with Cole. Ooh. Now there's a pitch. Yeah, it's the EP deck, but it's all eerie Emmy Gray. (laughs) (laughs) The lizards could never win. You guys are gonna correct him on so many rules. Oh yeah. God. I don't I don't know if I want to be in that position. I'm gonna see what I'm really excited about is that you won't want to correct him, but I'll see the pain in your face as you're like Listen, Cole. The thing is, is there's a warrior there. You're gonna have to spend an extra boot to get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of Cole, uh, today they had their design. Well, at the time of recording this, I watched the Leader Games Designer Diary stream. Mm. Uh, they've gotten the Marauder expansion mass production copies in. So, barring any crazy kind of a printing mistake or whatever it seems like the games are good to print in mass and ship over it looks like we should be expecting the expansion sometime in february march it looks like they were initially saying january and given all the crazy shipping stuff that's going on march ain't too bad uh, so very exciting. It seems like Marauders is imminently on its way. Um, no big like revelations from that stream. 
uh, too much, except for one thing that I'll get to much later in the podcast. Um, I did notice there was one glaring omission from the designer stream that I was a little upset about. Uh, still no word on the development of the root breakfast cereal featuring little marshmallows shaped like the maples. <laughs> uh, we'll keep you guys up to date on any future developments with that. Yeah, that's how we're going to make our name in, in root. Forget this podcast. We're going into cereal. Wait, was this your idea or their I idea? Kyle pitched Root O's many episodes ago. I can't remember. <laughs> root O's. <laughs> ah, there's a little spear in my cheek. What the hell? What kind of cereal Ambush. is this? This is all wood. There's no nutritional value to this. Yeah, every box comes with a 2D12 just like somewhere in the box. <laughs> you pour it in. Uh, also, great responses to our uh, recent Root Commandments episode. People really uh, have been responding to this episode well, which was fun for us. And shout out to Eraso who made the commandments into cards. Have you guys seen these? Oh, they are super cute. I was blown away. The art on them is so adorable. And there's like little inside jokes within the art for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like it's amazing. Yeah. And they're all like laid out. So you can print them and then cut them out and then keep them around as like a deck of cards. It's very cool. Yeah, I, th I think it's just you you hand it to someone when they break one of the commandments and you go, the people on the podcast said you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I think that's what you do with them. Oh my gosh. If you have started listening to this podcast because someone gave you one of those cards and you're just now getting to this episode... Welcome, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> glad you, I'm glad you could join us. It's going to take a long time to get all the jokes, I think, that are on the cards, but if you've made it this far, good for you. Good Welcome for you. The club. And way to go breaking a root commandment. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't feed the otters. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and uh, speaking of um, overfeeding the otters, we uh, we have a little bit of tournament recap to go into here. I did not watch this weekend. I have no idea what happened. Kyle, f catch me up. All right. So uh, this weekend, we had five more games for the winter tournament. We are approaching the end of round one. I will say there have been a ton of uh, Woodland War Machine fans that have appeared in and won their games in round one, which is always exciting hey. to see. Hey, 100%. I think it's like 40% of the names like I recognize as contributors to this show are winners. It is so awesome to know that our show is partly powered by people who are proving themselves to be amazing at Root. Yeah. Uh, that gives me so much confidence in what we say. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that it's people helping this show rather than <laughs> people listening to the pod and inherently winning games. I don't yeah. think that's the case. Our pride in hearing their names is the fact that they were talking to us and giving us hints beforehand, not yeah. the other way around. Yeah, that's how we know the info is good. They're winning games. It's great. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, like, Root is tough because it's four players and there's only one winner, right? Uh, so I, I just want to shout out that every game that I've watched so far has featured stellar top-notch Root play. And I, I mean, this is by far, I think, the strongest tournament that I've ever seen mm -hmm. of Root. Great. And that encourages me so much that we, A, we've not hit the ceiling yet of, like, Root skill. Um and B, that the community is actively growing and getting better and stronger, which is super cool to see. So anyway, let's go into this weekend's games. Uh, game 18 happened on the winter map, and fan of the show, Germ Curry, 
battled out with a couple of great players, including Matt from Space Cats Peace Turtles. Oh, really? Uh Jerm Curry is one of the best players I've ever played against. I remember he just played more than me, and I I was... uh, the lizards and he was the otters and i was like hey man if you lower your prices a little bit maybe i'll buy from you and he goes mm, no i'm gonna keep them the same and you're still gonna buy from me <laughs> and he was right uh he just had a better understanding of the game he's one of the players i look up to a lot for sure yeah one of the people who's on the bleeding edge of root strategy as well which i think is awesome yeah, yeah. uh well anyway all that experience definitely paid off because germ curry took Game night, uh, game eighteen on the winter map with the Lord of the Hundreds. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, this whole weekend we only had games on winter map and summer slash autumn map. People love the winter map. Somehow, I feel like those maps are just—I I don't know what it is. Like maybe it's tournament brain. Like everyone just wants a really even playing field. Like no one wants sure. the surprises or the like right. weirdness of the mobility is really shut down on the winter map especially if no one really has access to that river right so it can be a little bit grindy which is but you know potentially useful in a tournament situation but less variables right is that's really what people are angling for and i also i do think that people are kind of more familiar with uh the autumn map layout and winter map layout than they are with any of the others sure. so that's a very common denominator like you get if you have a lot of experience on those maps, you're going to feel more comfortable in like a fresher situation. Mm-hmm. I think the other two maps are swingier. I think they are swinging lake map and mountain map. We've all been in games where those like there's just a faction that you can't really catch. Whereas yeah. like winter and autumn feel more. I don't know. Accessible. I don't know. More entangled somehow. Yeah. Mountain yeah. map is a maze of entanglement to me. Like really? it's the most. Well, it can be, especially yeah. once all the passes are open and they that happens fairly quickly in most games. Yeah. One one thing that we've seen in the past, too, is that sometimes a faction can just like run away on the mountain map and yeah. go hide somewhere and it can just be too costly to like go find them. <laughs> That's true. If the passes haven't been open, then it is the opposite of what. It was, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on to game 19. Also on the winter map, this was our first cats victory. And nice. uh, root player Katare had an excellent and very instructive cats victory in winter map. It was, it was really a good game. That's awesome. I got to watch that one back. I'm excited. Really worth checking out. Uh, we had game 20 on the summer map. And here we saw a river folk company win, which uh, so swuffed back in the day started the spreadsheet oh, yeah. of root community data, which has been kind of like on and off um, updated, kept up to date. And obviously the games are of variable kind of quality. It's like beginners, it's veterans, it's a, you know a mix of everything, not just tournament data. But the picture has emerged over time that the river folk really benefit on the autumn map because the river connects to five clearings mm-hmm. that are all extremely important. And so I think inherently the river folk have a slight edge on the autumn map. And uh, Jason B. Santos proved that uh, with a great river folk victory in yes. game 20. Um, game 21, I actually I commentated with Garrick. It was super fun. Um, it's my new favorite Sunday morning thing to do. I uh, had another summer map game. Uh, some really strong players in that one. Uh, but in the end, Purple Potato took it as the Cats. Another Cats victory. Really exciting. Wow. And a pretty instructive one, too. Like, it was it was not a not a not an ending we could have predicted. It was almost a Woodland Alliance victory. How are these cats winning these games? Are is the are the other factions getting too embroiled to keep them in check or 
Um, it, it kind of is the product of some of the factions get bopped and that leaves space for the cats to like close it out basically. Mm-hmm. Cause I think there's like the common wisdom that we, we kind of leave the cats alone a little bit because they can't hang, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we also just see them less in general. I feel in games like they just haven't been getting drafted as much. I feel on average, but these are the first two cat wins, right? These are the first two cat wins of the tournament. Yeah. They're also like some of the first games that I've seen with cats. I know we had a couple, but like there hasn't been many, right? People are a bit afraid to pick the cats. But yeah, I think with ad set, it's it's kind of useful to pick them. You know, they get a good start. Uh, also, want to shout out in game 21, uh, we had fan of the pod Bop Bot oh, in that Bop game Bot. playing as the Vagabond, as the Harrier, in fact. Oh, and, man. Uh, Didn't he beat us with the with the Vagabond the last game we played with him? That's true. <laughs> we when we collectively broke the broke the root commandment of not hitting him well yeah we we were testing the limits of despot infamy i think yeah mm. and we found it yeah yeah if you, it turns out if you don't do anything about the vagabond they can still win yeah. <laughs> uh and yeah i also just want to give some credit to mike who had a really good game as the woodland alliance and oh it was so close but just didn't did not have enough to overcome the cat's advantage in the end um, really good stuff uh, last game of the weekend was on the summer map as well. Love Shard oh, brought yeah. it home with the Woodland Alliance. Nice. Pretty good. Pretty exciting. I have not had, actually not had a chance to review that game yet, so I, I don't know how, how good that one was. But we've had a lot of Woodland Alliance victories. I've seen Love Shard on Garrick's streams before. He's a very good player. Yeah. All right. And that's your Root Winter Tournament recap for this week. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kyle. Your uh, reporting has been incredible. A Pulitzer is coming your way. <laughs> looks looks rainy out there. Get home safe, Kyle. <laughs> we'll see you back at the studio. <laughs> All right. Let's do this thing, guys. There has been one topic that has been on the Discord for a few weeks now. We've debated it. We've been trying to kind of define what it is. Uh, Garrick gave us the name punitive mechanism uh we also kind of like the term kneecap what are we talking about guys what is a punitive mechanism i'm so glad you asked sam i do think this is an issue that has split our listening community straight down the middle it's like if you ask a a room (laughs) full of people uh all right everybody raise your hand if you like chocolate raise your hand if you like peanut butter and it's like just like a straight 50 50 split and a few freaks with both arms up (laughs) <laughs> myself included because i love chocolate peanut butter so good you you're legally required to be torn in half at that point <laughs> uh and then turned into reese's pieces here we go punitive <laughs> mechanism is a built-in punishment for a faction's engine all right uh it's a it's like a vulnerability that provides a setback to your game's momentum so at some point during the game somebody does just the right thing and that sets you back you know whatever you've been building it kind of gets like collapsed a little bit for those of you that are visual learners, um, I think someone made this comparison in the Discord, but if you are fighting a boss monster uh, in a video game, it's the glowing red spot that's a little smaller <laughs> on the body. That is a punitive mechanism. Yeah. It's a built-in weakness. Yeah. Because I'm old, the thing that immediately springs to mind is uh, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Yeah, same. When every same. single boss like has a red glowy spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Link, look! Yeah, no, I see it. I see it. Get out of my way. I'm trying to dodge this spider. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like the best example that you're immediately coming to mind in the game of Root is turmoil. 
mm-hmm. right? The birds, I think, have the most kind of uh, publicized and famous uh, punitive mechanism, which is their whole government <laughs> collapses. All of it's their actions are removed. Literally like a black square on the player board. Like- <laughs> it has... <laughs> when we get into turmoil later, like it has a whole portion of the law to itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even just that, like when they fail in their decree, they decide to write a new decree. It's that when they fail in their decree, they look around and they say, well, let's light everything on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kill uh, all the leaders and let's try again. Kill this vulture. He <laughs> promised us two new roofs every turn and he can no longer deliver. Hang him. <laughs> The woodland is full of roosts. We can't build any more. Destroy him. <laughs> there's a there's a really cute comic about turmoil. Um, oh, the root cellar. Yeah, root cellar has a really cute comic about turmoil where uh, they are. <laughs> I think it's for charismatic leader, like mm-hmm. over recruiting mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of pointing out how silly it is that they're like, our army is bigger and stronger than it ever has been. It's like, sir, we don't have any more soldiers. And it's just like, get him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So let's talk about uh, the other kind of punitive mechanisms. How many are there? Does every faction have one? Are they created equal? No. No is the answer to most of the questions I just kind of rhetorically asked. Uh, So uh, by my count, we've got turmoil, uh, Woodland Alliance base removal, Mm -hmm. trade post removal, Fear of the Faithful, Price of Failure, save it, save it, guys, save it. And to a lesser extent, prize trophies and uh, the warlords, like, recruit, anoint, struggle. Okay? Right. Uh, Is trade post removal called trade disruption? It is, yeah. I looked it up in the law today. It was not a phrase I was familiar with. (laughs) How did you know that offhand, Kyle? I don't know. I think there's just, like, some factoids that have just, like, lodged themselves yeah. in the distant synapses of my brain. And that one just like, it came out like a, you know, like you put a quarter into those old machines and you turn it and then like a little gumball thing pops out with yeah. a prize inside. That phrase appeared in my mouth like a prize. <laughs> I just think that synapse might be used for better things. Like it probably should be. <laughs> well, I <laughs> don't know. You guys I've devoted it to root. We've got a really important game of Root Purdy coming up, and those are the kind of things that can save you. For those of you who don't know what Root Purdy is, it is the bonus content here on Woodland War Machine. Uh, We do have a trivia segment. Uh, Play along at home. It's pretty difficult. Jake, how about you give us a little bit more information on how we can get more Root Purdy in our lives if we wanted? That's right, Sam. If you'd like to listen to the next episode of Root Purdy, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash good time society if you subscribe to any level of membership you'll get access to all of our bonus content including ruperty as well as behind the scenes features from our shoots full uncut episodes of to boldly watch talkbacks for our rpgs and much more Man, I need Root Purdy uh, around my house to help out with these Christmas decorations because that name is a stretch. <laughs> that joke was a stretch. Yeah, what do you mean, stretching the Christmas decorations? Oh, I don't know. I just stretching like the, to reach the, the height is where he's going. Yeah, things are up high and you got to hang them. Yeah. You know, oh, okay. whatever. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, here we go, guys. Let's talk about the factions that have absolutely no punitive mechanism. Okay. There's some things that I think we should debate on. Is this a punitive mechanism? Is Mm -hmm. it just a mechanic in the game? Is it really Mm -hmm. just a gift to other players? But these two, 
there is no punitive mechanism for. Okay. The first is the Marquise de Cat. Marquise de Cat has no inherent thing. Your punishment is being the cats. <laughs> All right. You have strong needs in the game and very limited actions. There's not like one overt thing that specifically costs you points, cards, actions, warriors, or even slows down your engine. It's just generally how the game plays out that works against you. Right. It's like losing the keep is emotionally devastating, but right. it really doesn't do much for your engine usually. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't hurt your engine. Like, I guess kind of like now you can't field hospitals, but that that is bad, but it doesn't feel like it's a specific punitive mechanism. Yeah, nothing is triggered when you lose the keep. Sure, but there's no mechanism for bringing the keep back. So it feels like a punitive thing you can't do <laughs> it feels like well, it's uh, it's close removal of the keep is like the closest thing i'd say next to the fact that they have to have a path of ruled um clearings to access their wood because when people when factions access any resources either on their board or on the board they don't really have much of a requirement for accessing their pieces they can just those pieces are there they use them but with the cats it's a little bit different where they have to have a little bit of a connector now i guess that's not a punitive mechanism but both this and the lack of respawn for the keep feel like uh punitive um restrictive mechanisms sure restrictive, sure restrictive yeah. mechanisms or like yeah. passively <laughs> punitive in a sense the fact that the cats don't respawn have no um Oh, what is it? They have no comeback mechanic in, of any kind. Yeah. Um, that's not the right term for that. What is it? Like when you get no, board wiped I, I yeah. and come back? Okay, great. So the cats don't have any kind of comeback mechanic if they get board wiped, um, which in a way seems a bit punitive, right? Like passively, right? You can't come back. That's the limit of the cat's punitive mechanisms. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they have one other than just it's life is tough if but that doesn't happen very often the key part of this is the bigger like the more the closer option yeah right? I, well i think i think jake i think you were right when you were talking about interconnected clearings like you can take away the keep and it doesn't affect the cats but if you mm -hmm. tie them for rule in a clearing where they have a sawmill that's worse <laughs> you know what i mean right um and it's easier to do like taking out the keep is no easy yeah. feat. So, but, but throw in a bunch of warriors in the clearing that there's lightly defended, but they ruled. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. easy. Um, and yeah, in, in the, you know, the, the shadow episode of this, when we do talk about comeback mechanics or something like that, the cats don't have one of those either. It's just a weird faction design. Uh, when you stack it up to the rest of them, how it doesn't have those type of things. Narratively, it could make sense since the cats are foreign invaders. They don't just like respawn in the woods like organically, right? They have to come from far away. And so when you take them all out, they're just kind of gone. I like that guy. They respawn in Europe. Right, exactly. Yeah. Some, they're from some a nearby urban environment. Yeah, they respawn in London or something. <laughs> on on some Axis and Allies map somewhere in someone's house, a bunch of cats. <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be terrifying. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, the other faction. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> the other faction without any punitive mechanism is at the opposite end of the spectrum is the vagabond. The vagabond <laughs> doesn't have any punitive mechanism. It only has mechanisms that make it better, right? It can move regardless of rule. It can do anything it wants. It's not a warrior. The only thing that comes close is like you can damage its items 
and then it has to go into the forest. But that's not punitive. It actually gets a full reset. Yeah, I think the only thing that hurts the vagabonds like permanently is if you have to throw items out because you're over a satchel limit. But even that, like usually there's multiple copies of the items. I would say like if you get rid of a torch because of your satchel limit and you have to discard the item, that would be the most punitive thing I could think of. But that's up to you. You don't have to do that. Yeah, I think bag limitation is the closest thing, but it's also something that nobody else can control. The (laughs) other players can't do it to you. Right. They could not craft a bag. We talked about that in our versus Vagabond guide. Like you could look out for that. But honestly, it's just going to come down to luck of what ruin items they get when they do their explore. Yeah. (sighs) I'm going to push back. Oh, here it comes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The fact that you can damage their items, forcing them to take a full turn in the forest is a punitive mechanism by definition. But it's not much of one. It's also their choice. I feel like that like muddies the water. But they can't. It's not. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. I guess it's their choice. But you're damaging their components. They ca- they have less actions and they have to choose to repair them in some mechanism. I guess they can hammer them in and repair slowly. But if you do it enough, it, it forces them to take a turn out of their repertoire. Right. Yeah, I guess Isn't so. That what a punitive mechanism is like an evening's rest is kind of the culmination of them being attacked i guess and set back in that way yeah they are set back a turn if you didn't do it or if that thing wasn't there they wouldn't be set back a turn that's what a punitive mechanism is granted it's not much of one considering what they can do which is they can easily repair all the damage you did in one turn this is instructive i i feel like it's this uh, it's it's not quite a punitive mechanism it's just like if i attacked 10 of your warriors jake and I removed 10 of your warriors from the board it's going to take you multiple turns to get those 10 warriors back but that's not necessarily a punitive mechanism. That's just the result of me attacking you. I understand, but you um, you killing my warriors doesn't limit my actions. It uh, doesn't limit my amount of my action economy next turn. For the Vagabond, it does. Um, again, I, I'm on your side of like, this is not in the same class as uh, Turmoil or um, Fear of the Faithful. I, I agree with that. It's definitely less. But I wouldn't say it's not a punitive mechanism. It just is. But it's also kind of the only mechanism for hitting the Vagabond, right? Is to hit their stuff. Yeah, so I guess his his glowing red spot is his face. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, think, I, I, I think it's just the mechanism they have to repair their items. It's not a special, it's not a special mechanism. It's the mechanism. It's the mechanism. It's actually like a comeback mechanism. Right. An I guess evening's so. rest is a comeback mechanism from being damaged rather than the mechanism itself being punitive. I, I don't think an evening's rest is what I'm talking about as the punitive mechanism. I think the fact they that they damaged. take right. damage on, on their action economy is the punitive mechanism mm. is what I'm saying. Mm. Right, as opposed to having warriors, they have, like, action abilities. You stop their ability to do things next turn. Or hinder it, I should say. Again, I'm not defending the Vagabond in terms of not being super powerful, (laughs) and they can't fix this problem quickly. But I'm just saying, if we're talking about terms, I think it falls under that. I think that's an interesting interpretation, the fact that they have to damage items when they take hits. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I think it belongs more in the line with the cats of not really having a punitive mechanism or it being very interpretive rather than the next segment of segment. Yeah, it it does become a little bit of a game of semantics, but 
That's what this episode is going to be about, though. We're going to be arguing about. <laughs> so buckle yeah. up, folks. Yeah. I mean, that's what the podcast is. We don't. We didn't choose yeah. a, an easy game, you know, <laughs> that we could know everything about. Like that wouldn't be interesting to listen to us talk about. It's why I struggle to explain what this podcast is to anyone else besides gamers. <laughs> <laughs> like it's about one board game. Like you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the, we'll we'll set those two aside as semi or non uh, punitive mechanisms. So let's get into the real ones. Yeah. So these ones I'd consider minor or even questionable punitive mechanisms. Like how much is it really a punitive mechanism? Is it just really a reward for other players? Um, and let's start with the one where I'm the most unsure about, and that is the Corvid's conspiracy exposure. Okay. Uh, mm. Kyle, will you read Exposure for us here? Absolutely, Sam. Exposure. Uh, this is Law 13.2.4. <laughs> Thank you. Anytime on their turn, but before drawing any cards in their evening, uh, specifically, I think, because of Charm Offensive, right? Right. Uh, or maybe some other ability. An enemy player with faction pieces in a clearing with a face-down plot token may show the Corvids a matching card to guess the type of plot token that in that clearing. If incorrect, the Corvids say no. And the enemy player gives that card to the Corvids. If correct, the enemy player removes the plot token, scoring a victory point and ignores its effect. Uh, I never noticed the no specificity. There. Yeah, no. They, you, you have to say no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, notably, the Corvids do not have to reveal which plot it was. You can just take it away and say, you guessed... Uh, oh well, I guess if they guess correctly, then they can take it away. You don't say. You don't say. You guessed. You just say no, 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 mm, no, no. So this is obviously a way to get the plots off the board, right? But there's another way to get the plots off the board, which is battle. If you battle the plots, nothing bad happens. Uh, I guess raid has an effect, but really, there's there's no downside to just battling them. But Jake, you're right. Embedded agents might might make it hurt more. Uh, because they score an extra hit when they have a face-down plot token. Uh, but this allows like factions like the Lizards or somebody with uh, not a lot of battle actions to combat the Corvid's ability to plot. Is this a punitive mechanism, though? I think I can answer your question with another question. If you were a faction and I said to you, I'm going to add an ability um that allows me to remove some of your tokens without battling them would you consider it a punitive mechanism i would say i i, I think so i think so i, think I asked would. people on the discord about this and the reaction was more mixed than i thought because at first i thought the corvids didn't have a punitive mechanism but then exposure does feel like one uh, yeah i, I think a hundred percent it is because it's an alternative to the traditional way of removing tokens people's engines revolve around their buildings and their tokens to an extent right? and if we were to pick one element of the corvids that is like a glowing red like weak spot i think exposure definitely is that right like because how many corvid victories have slipped through their feathers because the players at the table like got together and did a bunch of expose uh, 98% guesses. Yeah. So many, I feel like <laughs> it's also why the crows aren't allowed to just massive warriors around plots and protect them because that's not, that's not going to work right. because of exposure. It's, it's the, also, I think it's also a punitive mechanism. That's the most needed in the build. Like it's a requirement. If you didn't have it, they'd be broken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really does oh, yeah. fit 
together really elegantly with the rest of the design. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in practice, it feels like a punishment. It is. <laughs> as the Corbett's well, player. <laughs> but that's what a punitive measure is, though, or mechanism kind of is, though. It is kind of like your punishment for how you work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Achilles heel a little bit. Right. I think we discussed this when talking about the crows, but I think what like makes them slightly underpowered isn't the fact that exposure exists. It's just that there's so few options for exposure. There's only four token types, and there's only two of each of those tokens, right? I think it's the fact you can unlimited, unlimited guess. Right, but especially between the amount right, of players, right, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if... The, it, it would be harder if there were five token types or three of each plot or whatever, but that's the way it goes. So I think putting this under minor or questionable punitive mechanism makes sense, but yeah. I think it is a punitive mechanism for what it's worth. At least yeah. this is the crow's version of it. Yeah. I think if you limited it to one guess per player per turn, the guessing would be really tense. <laughs> it's like, already kind of tense. They're still limited by having, uh, let's see, do they have to be in that yeah, clearance? Yeah. And have do a matching card. they have to card. have a card matching yeah. that mm-hmm. clearing? I mean, those are pretty specific requirements. Yeah, it's pretty easy to do, though. Sure, but it's not unlimited. It's it's limited in positioning and card economy. I think the, the idea is that it would be self-limiting for that right. reason. The thing is, is at the end of a game, usually players have, like, pretty full hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, birds are wild. So also, it all right. doesn't take an, an unlimited amount of guesses unless someone is stupid and guesses the same thing twice. <laughs> That's, That's a fair point. Like you only That's need four point. guesses to 100 percent make it the case. Right. Yeah. And true. you can usually do enough deductive reasoning with what's face up on that at that point of the game, too. Right. It's a punitive mechanism. OK. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Next one. We've got the keepers and iron prized trophies. Kyle, will you indulge us on prized trophies? Absolutely. Uh, so this is from the Keepers and Iron. This is a new section in the Law of Ruth. This is 15.2.5. Prize trophies. Whenever an enemy removes a relic, they place it in any forest, face up, and score an extra victory point for a total of two. So this one, uh, I think it's more interesting to talk about like that extra point, right? Like It's more providing an incentive for players to remove them and yes you can put them further away from the keepers but in the whole grand scheme of punitive mechanisms that one feels kind of small yeah but it's interesting for me like the fact that you're making removing my pieces more inherently more valuable yeah and thematically the fact that it's like oh you took away this you know precious relic sold it on the black market and it ended up somewhere in the middle of the forest like buried in somebody's (laughs) backyard or whatever like I love that. <laughs> I'm going to push back. I don't think it's a punitive mechanism. Wow. Wow. Jake, <laughs> j- just contrarian Jake today. Yeah. I think I'm going to just try and say no as frequently as possible. Yeah, that's good. Well, it's a, it's a punitive. It's a negative view episode. Thou shalt not. I am the punitive mechanism of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. The scouring fire. Oh, we'll, of we'll just call him skepticism. a Jake. Every faction has a Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make that the meta. No. Oh my god. All right, so Jake, why isn't this a punitive mechanism in your eyes? Because the extra point is generally countered by the fact that these guys can take an extra hit in battle when the relics there with their warriors. So it's a much more costly endeavor to go get them. In fact, I don't see prize trophies activated very often in games. Do you guys? 
I haven't played enough games for it to. But yeah, I agree. I haven't seen it come into play a lot. But your argument is almost like carbon offsetting. Like it, it, there is like a punishment, <laughs> but you're like, but they have an advantage in the same interaction, which I think is interesting. I think it's a benefit for them that it goes back in the forest and isn't removed from the game because a lot of pe- people's places pieces are removed from the game. I guess to their benefit in the case of like the otters and stuff like right. that but some things are just like not usable anymore like talk about items for vagabond or war uh, lord of the hundreds like they don't those don't go back onto the board the keepers can unearth those again that's great that's a that's a that is a benefit kyle you said prize trophies it's like you get to put it wherever you want place it in any forest face yeah up. ah sure well there is that they, they can throw it across the map and that's hard for the badgers to take but at least that's there yeah I think like for all practical purposes in a real game of root, if that relic goes all the way across the forest, unless it's super duper early in the game when this happens, you're probably never going to delve that relic, right? Like it, it's just probably too far away or there's like some kind of shenanigans with an end game to make that happen. But I mean, it feels a little bit of like a light punitive mechanism is what I'll say. It feels more like keep away than it is like your whole action economy collapses. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. true, you score by recovering relics, so that is a little annoying uh, to lose that one relic. But again, mm-hmm. there's so many out there, right? Well, you do also get the added knowledge of when it's returned of what it is, so you can align your um, ruling of clearings adjacent to it to match up what you need for the points, right? Yeah, so it's not not a hard reset, I guess. Yeah, they're not gonna. I agree with you. They're not gonna set it into the forest where it's easily obtainable for you again, but. I mean, if it happens early, too, at least it gets back in there and you have options. Yeah. In terms of being a kneecap, this is more of a like kick in the shins. (laughs) I guess also, I mean, returning to semantics, punitive is about inflicting punishment and nothing about this is punishing it. You you take away their ability to delve and you set them back a couple turns on that on that one specific relic. Yeah, it definitely goes in reverse gear for their their scoring ability, right? They want to recover this relic that they've already delved, and instead you, like, set it back one turn. I think the thing that doesn't feel very punitive, though, is that it is just one token one time. Yeah. I mean, Um, with the exception of the Woodland Alliance, everybody gets uh, set back when their tokens disappear. True, true. But just in terms of, like, the kind of assembly line type of thing that it takes to score points with relics... It's like you get something from step one to step two, almost to step three, and then a player like interrupts yeah, you that have to and restart puts you the all process. The way back to sure, step one. I can see the otters point too. That's a good point. Yeah, and and I initially thought maybe the new factions don't have these. They're almost more in the cats line, where it's like the game itself is the thing that's kind of working against you. You kind of have an uphill battle, and your scoring is a little bit more natural, and you don't need this huge punitive mechanism, but. Let's talk about the Lord of the Hundreds, because they don't... This is a very light one. Uh, You can remove their warlord, right? And you think that that would really do something to the faction called the Lord of the Hundreds. (laughs) But really, it just affects their kind of recruit and warrior count, which, to be fair, is one of the scarier parts of that faction. So uh, when they recruit... uh, Kyle, hit me with what the, uh, the Lord of the Hundreds recruit is. Okay, yeah, so it's important to understand this in order to understand why it hurts to lose the warlord uh, meeple, that warrior. 
it's not a pawn. It's just a big warrior. Is that right? It's a warrior that can't be removed by a couple things. Yeah, it's just okay, a special great. warrior. It's a special warrior. So when you lose the special warrior, you lose this portion of recruit, which I'm going to read right now. Recruit. Place warriors equal in number to your prowess in the clearing with your warlord. Then place warriors in each clearing with any strongholds, one warrior per stronghold there. So your warlord is so kind of powerful and uh, charismatic that uh, the warlord kind of attracts these rat followers to him wherever he goes, equal to prowess. So during your birdsong each turn, you'll like gain those warriors around the warlord. Like this entourage is is slowly growing over time. And that's just an extra recruit on top of it, all, all the strongholds that you have built. And usually that's pretty strong because, you know, when prowess hits two or three, like, that's a lot of warriors that are going to be adding to your rat ball every turn. <laughs> oh, Int- intense. Okay. So let's talk about anoint then. So if you do lose the warlord in battle or something, if the warlord is not on the map, you must replace any hundreds warrior with the warlord. If you cannot, you must place the warlord in any clearing. Notably, anoint happens after recruit. Right. So that recruit step is going to hit first, and then if the warlord's not on the map, then you, you know, take Jerry and make him the warlord. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to miss out on one, two, three, or four recruits, and then once you get to your anoint step, you will have to change one of your warriors to the warlord. You don't lose a warrior, but you have to transform one. You have to anoint a new one. So... Uh, you don't have a Jerry anymore. You have Jerry the Warlord. Uh, so obviously this can affect the troops' numbers a little bit, but it really doesn't... I don't know. The Warlord's engine is about ruling clearings unopposed. So is this a punitive mechanism? It's a setback, I guess. I think it's like the order of operations is a little bit punitive in that sense. Like You don't just get to make a Warlord and then that Warlord instantly recruits a bunch. Um, I think the way that it's ordered kind of just makes it a little tough. I mean, it's the same type of thing where, like, usually you can't build a crafting piece and then craft with it in the same turn. Uh, For most factions, usually you have to wait. Um, There's a a number of exceptions to that, but this feels very similar to that. Like, if you've lost the Warlord, your punishment is you don't get that little recruit bonus. Yeah, but that's what it feels like. It feels like you don't get a bonus. Right. Which is that, so a, is that punitive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess normal. so. In terms of a kneecap, this is more of a stub toe. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get the main mechanism you need for your engine, which is more warriors to barrel down the road, right? Right. But notably, you still get warriors if you have strongholds. Yeah. Yeah. And right. you, you still do. get yeah. a warlord yeah. to do advances. Like, it still provides you with all the tools. It's just they're not always in the same place. And, I was going to I was going to say it's not really a punitive mechanism, but then I thought back to my tournament game and the Lord of the Hundreds in there, which they were on track to win. Yeah. And the only way we stopped them was by wiping out the warrior or the warlord. Yeah. So that felt like my punitive mechanism. It's it's the only thing that that faction's got in terms of a punitive mechanism. But I think when you stack it up against the other ones, it doesn't feel special because the beauty mechanism is, is kill him like that's what you do with any faction is kill delete them. the warlord yeah, delete so yeah. I, it makes sense i mean I, if we were to ask the marquee if this feels like a punitive mechanism he's gonna be like no or i guess she's gonna be like no they can return to the board <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can't do that yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, it's true. You cannot simply anoint a new Marquise. Who are you kidding? I'm one of a kind. Yeah, that's I think true. it's I think it's questionable. I think I think it's borderline not. But I see how the order of operations, because recruit becomes before anoint, that it is such a uh, hamstringing that it makes sense. Yeah. So it's a hamstring, not a net kneecap. Yeah, I agree, Jake. I think it it's like a pulled muscle. Like you can look. You'll walk again. Yeah, and like <laughs> if coach needs you to go in, you can play. You know oh, what I mean? But coach is not a good you're coach. You're not going to be at 100%. Uh, do you know what the <laughs> um, sports physical was... therapist's name is? What? It's root pretty because it'll help you stretch. Okay. <laughs> Kyle, leave it alone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, all right. Hey, listener, this is Kyle's last episode, we promise. <laughs> uh, he'll be back on for season three after some therapy. You can ship me off to pun school or whatever. I don't know. Um Here's the thing, though. I think this definitely belongs in the minor punitive mechanism camp. Uh, it feels very much on par with the keepers prized trophies like this. Just it doesn't hit that hard. It, right. It's a little inconvenient. Right. I think like the oppressing clearings is difficult. Like that is where they are going to find their struggle in their game. It's not going to be by hitting the warlord a bunch of times is not going to be the thing. Like it's going to have a lot more to do with how the game plays out. And the, I mean, the thing is too, is if, if you have a high prowess and you're recruiting a bunch with that and somebody kills the warlord, like you still have all that prowess. And when you anoint a new warlord, you're still going to be able to move in battle a ton. Yeah. So like, yeah, it just doesn't reset your engine as much as it impacts your warrior count. Let's be real. The one of the most limiting things about the warlord is you draw one card. End of sentence. Oh, I guess there's one mood that allows you to draw more of the cards. But like, yeah. that's where the faction has its limitations, not necessarily with this thing. And I think that's good. You know, we don't need every one of these factions to have the same kind of kneecap that another faction has, right? Yeah. Each of these factions are designed so unique that they do have different struggles and different issues. So uh, I think... I think the Lord of the Hundreds is dialed in pretty good. All right. Let's talk otters, people. Kyle, tell me a little bit about trade disruption. All right. This is uh, from the Law of Root Rule 11.2.5, uh, subsection 1. <laughs> trade disruption. Whenever a trade post is removed, the river folk remove half of their funds, round it up, and remove the trade post from the game permanently. Wow, that sounds awful. It sounds like you're going to lose a piece from the game permanently, and you're going to lose half of your funds, which are your actions. Right. The thing is, is you don't lose any committed funds, and you don't lose any payments. You only lose funds that are still in the funds box and are not committed. So really, this only happens in two scenarios, realistically. One is, if you're trying to camp out, and uh, go for dividends, Yeah, which is basically you have a trade post on the map, you save all your funds, you don't commit any of them, and you just sit. You score one point for every two funds when it comes back around to your turn that are in the funds box, okay? So to kind of disincentivize that, trade disruption, uh, like when, whenever your opponents kill one of your trade posts, you would lose half of the funds in the box, half of the potential points that you would score. So if you're going for dividends and just camping out on top of one of your trade posts, people are going to target you down and you would suffer trade disruption. The only other circumstance where I've seen this happen, uh, this is this is definitely a blunder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To use a chess term here. Uh, and that's when it is the Riverfolk's turn. 
they drop a trade post somewhere, yeah. a lightly defended trade post, like with one warrior, for example. They attack like a sympathy, let's say. Right. And the alliance springs an ambush on them, killing Ugh. two hits that kills the one warrior and removes Ugh. the trade post. Mm. If the river folk have any funds in their funds box, they're going to lose half of those on their turn because of that ambush. So that's a real whoops a daisy uh, one you really want to avoid. So if you're going to attack sympathy or whatever from a lightly defended trade post, just make sure you do it at the end of your actions. You don't want to lose funds that way. <laughs> yeah, or just like have three warriors there. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like there's so many ways. The thing, the thing, this, I, I almost put this and they don't have a punitive mechanism because it doesn't come up. Almost it's nobody goes for dividends. And then the ambush thing is completely avoidable. So it's, yeah. it's, it's very, I mean, I've tried to make dividends work. I've, I've been playing some strats and I think it can work for a couple turns, but this is why you can't do it the whole game because you will lose half your funds and good luck getting those funds back. You know, once you've shown that you're a hoarder, people don't like to buy from hoarders. And this is kind of funny. So, Jake, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, because we have this under minor or questionable punitive mechanisms. It really does sound like this checks the boxes, right? It mm -hmm. destroys half of your action economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it removes the piece permanently. It's, it seems like this is a pretty punitive mechanism. The thing is, it just doesn't come up very often. Yeah. You're just rarely in a situation where it matters. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 100% a punitive mechanism. It's just a lame one <laughs> like instead of a kneecap it's like they stubbed their toe last week and you're stepping on it again yeah right you guys made all the points i don't need to reiterate but you're right is that funds are generally spent therefore they're not messed with outside of the otter's turn right totally yeah, yeah. so unless they're saving for dividends which uh which i recall from our episode about the otters you just don't do uh then it doesn't really matter and Sam kind of alluded to it in his tone, which was that losing the trade post from the game is great because that means you can still craft with it. It doesn't go back on your board and take up a crafting spot that you have to then reopen again. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a punitive mechanism. It just doesn't really get utilized. Right. It's like kneecapping somebody, but we're playing darts. Right. And it's like they don't need kneecaps to play darts. You're going to well. be removed from the, the bar. You really shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> All right, now it's time to get into the real stuff, guys. I'm talking true punitive mechanisms, all right? Yeah, th these are mechanisms that deserve their own slice of the player board. These are mechanisms that, when they're happening, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It is like a goal we all have in mind. We all know we can press this button and ruin their chances at winning. Yeah, so let's let's start with uh, the kind of classic example that we mentioned at the top of the episode, and that is Turmoil. Kyle, I'm not going to make you read all of Turmoil because it has an entire section of the law to itself. Uh, and I think it's a base faction. We're all pretty familiar. You discard all of your cards except for the Loyal Viziers. You lose your leader. You lose points. That's right. It is the only thing in route across eight root products that add content to the game not like map like not like neoprene maps or stuff eight root products it's the only thing that causes point loss it's so yeah. scarring that for like the first year i played root i kept wondering about other factions like okay so how to make them lose points and then someone would be like you can't make them lose points that doesn't happen i'm like but 
the birds. They're like, oh yeah, the birds. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one else loses points except the birds. I yep. feel like this is the moment where you realize that the asymmetry in Root uh, is very real and that it's slightly cruel. Yeah. 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 Truthless. Yeah, I, I love think- it. I think a lot of people struggle figuring out the birds at first, but I think we know now as experienced players or whatever that like it takes a turmoil to deal with the birds. The birds are a very powerful faction in the right hands and a a drastic measure like turmoil is required to make them kind of in balance. And Mm -hmm. also I've seen a game where the birds have not turmoiled in one, where the birds have turmoiled in one and where the birds have turmoiled twice and one. You're kind of in control of how punitive it is, given how many bird cards you add to the decree and stuff like that. It's very interesting. It's also become such a part of the meta that when the birds are in the game, it's a naturally assumed part of the flow of a game. It's something I'm checking at the top of my turn if the birds are in the game. I'm just like, they're going to turmoil. How can it turmoil them? Like, what's the kind of ticking clock? on Always looking at what cards are going into that decree. Very interested. It's almost not a punitive mechanism in the way that it's such a natural component of their engine. It's kind of odd because not only can you turmoil them, but they can turmoil themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like someone taking a club to their own knee a little bit. You know, I don't think any of these other ones you can do to yours. Oh, trade disruption. We talked about how you can kind of whoopsie. Yeah, that still requires an ambush from another player. Yeah, that requires someone else to truly do it. This is the only one where you do it to yourself. I guess the uh, the bag limitation you could do to yourself, you know, if you if you chose oh, but to that's like... in the absolutely not section yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so it's it's such a part of everybody's discussion at the board is how are we going to get them to turmoil and when and the timing of that is such a flow of the game that it feels like just a natural part of their engine but there as sam said there have been many a game where they've won without turmoiling and that's probably why they won oh yeah yeah, that, that punitive mechanism, I feel like, is the most baked into the design of the faction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do want to draw some quick attention. Uh, so this term, punitive mechanism, is a little bit like dramatic sounding, I think in a fun way. But when it comes to turmoil, I feel like you can't top the names for the like steps of turmoil <laughs> yeah, and how like, intense it. they're trying to make it sound. Literally, the first step is humiliate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, wow, for a punitive mechanism, like they're really trying to make you feel this government collapse right now. It's amazing. All right, let's let's go on to uh, this one. I I feel like is a true punitive mechanism. This might be one of the more uh, balanced ones, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's the Woodland Alliance. Yeah, this punitive mechanism about removing bases is called removing bases. Kyle, tell us about (laughs) removing bases. Whenever a base is removed, the Alliance must discard all supporters matching the printed suit of that base, including birds, and remove half of their officers rounded up. Ooh. If the Alliance has no more bases on the map and has more than five supporters, they gotta discard down to five supporters. So, removing the bases, this can be devastating. This is what you, you want to do. If the Woodland Alliance's engine is two online, if they have two bases, you know, we we all heard the versus guide. Removing a base is the best way to slow them down. A whole turn, at least, right? Kyle, you're our Woodland Alliance expert. 
talk to us about re- removing the bases. Can you recover from it? Because it feels like turmoil, like to me. Like you can win the game if it happens to you. Look, you guys, you spend ages distributing <laughs> literature. You're having secret meetings in the basement of libraries. You eventually get someone on board to become an officer. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll wear the hat. And then someone comes in and burns down your base, and then they're just gone out into the night, and you got to start the whole process over again. It's it's such a big setback. It's super annoying. When you're so powerful, you have to go back to pamphlets. That's just the worst. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, used you, to own a space. <laughs> ah, that's right. Uh, but the rent went up. The Erie moved in. Yeah, um, it's all over after that. This makes me feel like the Woodland Alliance are just a theater troupe at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, owning a Not space totally is wrong. never a good idea, guys. I mean, as soon as they st- <laughs> and as soon as they start recruiting officers, the whole product goes downhill. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're like, I thought they were just taking classes. Now they're an officer. <laughs> all right, um, <laughs> got that. All right, comedy show, comedy show. <laughs> it's just like Marxist literature. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I want to go back to Jake's carbon offset uh, argument here. Uh, or, to be clear, you made that comparison. I'm not trying to make your that argu- a good it thing. It was your argument. I just labeled it carbon offsetting. Where <laughs> Because the Woodland Alliance always gets the higher role in defense, taking out a base sucks to do. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. You're going to lose a lot of warriors in the process. It usually takes a concerted effort. Uh, but the rewards for taking out a base are juicy. Like, it, it does genuinely set the Woodland Alliance back. And I think this checks the box for punitive mechanism because they lose those officers. Those officers, yep. of course, unlock the evening actions for the Woodland Alliance. Uh, and without those, they have a lot of, they, you know, they struggle to spread sympathy, move and organize. Plus, it hits their supporter stack. Yeah. And they lose all those bird cards in the supporters, which is like, I mean, almost more than the suited cards. I would say, like, losing the birds in the supporter stack can be just a dream killer. <laughs> yeah, it's a double hurt. It's it's That's a lot, especially when getting officers is a whole lot of work, too. Right. Yeah, a whole card. You also lose the card draw from the base as well. That's true. Yeah, I mean... And there's no possibility of re-revolting on that next turn. Uh, I mean, unless some more outrage gets triggered, et cetera, et cetera. But, right. you know, in a kind of neutral situation... Yeah, we're trying to get to the point where we're talking about how they build their stuff, which isn't a punitive measure anymore. But you're right. Like the fact that they are so dependent upon those things for so many, including officers and supporters, that it's just brutal. Yeah, when it happens. you take out the base and that removes the option for them to recover it. Whereas if you kill yeah. the warlord, he just pops back into play. The base is going to have a harder time showing up. Yeah, that's a good point, Kyle. Right. All the matching supporters, including birds, means that 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 revolt in revenge would actually be pretty rare and difficult to pull off they'd have to be moving into other sympathy and uh that either matches that clearing or you get lucky with the draw if they don't have the matching card so yeah i i that that makes a lot of sense of of how bad it hurts i mean but i've seen the woodland alliance win games where they've lost a base maybe even two i might have seen them win a game where they've lost two bases Whoa. i can't, can't recall off the top of my head but I mean, it can happen the same way multiple turmoils can happen because the yeah. game got dragged out on the other side of the map as well, and the the rebuild is possible. Right. Right. But again, it is tough to remove a base. Uh, it does happen. The Woodland Alliance can recover. Let's just put it that way. Um, let's move on to uh, the two 
the two punitive mechanisms that have rocked our community <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. So much that they've gotten their own acronyms, and that's become like a whole thing in the Discord. I love it. <laughs> I don't. I can't tell you guys how many times I accidentally wrote "fear of failure" <laughs> instead of "fear of the faithful" or "price of failure." You guys, we are talking about it. It's time for the great debate. Honorable <laughs> Judge Kyle Atchison standing. I declare neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, I will say on the previous uh, time we talked about this, we touched on it very naturally. It was a good uh, moment of conversation, and it got the Discord talking. You did side with uh, Price of Failure, the mole's punitive mechanism. That is true. Um, I've been doing a little bit of reading and thinking and reflecting since then. I've consulted uh, precedent and uh, you know prior cases, and honestly, I'm coming into this with a pretty open mind. Like, I I am willing to be convinced by the stronger argument about which is worse, price of failure or fear of the faithful. Let's set this context up for the people who don't have the best memory of this little debate that we started a few episodes ago. So fear of the faithful is the lizard cult punitive mechanism. Kyle, you want to yes. read it aloud? Yeah, fear of the faithful is uh, whenever a garden is removed, uh, that's the lizard cult sort of buildings that they build. Whenever a garden is removed, the cult must discard a random card. And this got brought up in, was it, I don't even remember what episode it was. Was it the commandments? It was the commandments, right? Uh, I think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah. This got brought up in a previous episode uh, in comparison to the price of failure, which is for the underground duchy. Let's read that off real quick, too. The price of failure. That sounds like a game show. All right, here we go. <laughs> Whenever any number of duchy buildings are removed, the duchy discards a random card, returns their swayed minister card of the highest rank, lord, then noble, then squire, to their unswayed minister's pile, and removes its crown from the game permanently. If they have multiple swayed ministers of highest rank, the duchy chooses which to return. Great. All right. So we had debated about yeah we, we you you summarized it but we debated the fact that which one was worse than the other and I went out on a limb and said the price of failure was worse. This inspired quite a conversation on Discord. I think I'm still in the minority of opinion that price of failure is. But you're not alone. I think no, I'm that not this alone. is a good debate to have, which is why we are going to argue it here in root court. <laughs> All right, and just to be clear, we're trying to determine which is worse. Right. Right. Fear the faithful. Or price of failure, which is more detrimental, which is more punitive. Hi, I'm a public defender. I've been assigned to this case. Um, I just wanted <laughs> to know, when we say it's worse, do we mean worse for the faction that it is or just worse in terms of like numbers in the game? Um, here's the thing. Root is an asymmetric game. Mm -hmm. I think we have to I think we have to relate it to the faction that it is impacting mm -hmm. and try and sort of subjectively a bit compare the impact and that's why this is a debate and not just an objective thing because objectively there's more stuff going on in price of failure oh judge don't don't help me out too much we, we should uh you, you don't have to give away your hand too too early oh i'm impartial i'm a judge and being objective i can count stuff yeah that's objective i agree you can see the stack of paper on my desk uh, yeah yeah okay yeah. great <laughs> But yes, I, I would say from a bird's eye view here, it, it is important to consider 
the context of each faction in terms of the punitive mechanism. I will remind you that the prosecution has a disdain for birds, so keep that in mind, Judge. <laughs> hatred. A pure hatred, actually. <laughs> All right, you have disdain for trade, right? Yeah, no. Birds have yeah, disdain for trade. Don't correct me on that because it makes it worse. Birds have disdain for trade. I would never be caught dead with a bird. All right, I hate <laughs> Honorable Judge, in the defense of the lizard cult... And the punitive measure of fear of the faithful being the worst punitive mechanism. I would like to present my first argument, which is cards to the lizard cult are actions. Okay, Every card you have is an action, whether you use it to recruit, to build, and most importantly, to score. By removing a random card with a garden you are removing the chance for them to score or rebuild that garden and limiting the amount of actions that the lizard cult will have on their turn regardless of how unlucky that random card may be. I I hear those arguments and they are going to be weighed with an (laughs) even hand. Yeah, uh, let's hear from the uh, public defender here. Yeah, yeah. I agree with the prosecution over here. Uh, The lizards definitely have cards as part of both their actions and their scoring mechanisms. However, I submit to you that the underground duchy has the exact same thing. Now, you may be saying, Jake, what are you talking about? They have two actions in their daylight. That's just part of what they do. That's true. But we can get additional actions from suede ministers. How we get suede ministers is through cards. Now, we lose cards and suede ministers upon the price of failure. So we suffer the same detrimental effects at a minimum. But as you noted before the case even started, Judge, we have more. All right. Well, I want to address something that I I think hasn't really come up yet in this dispute, which I think could help to break this deadlock. Because, I mean, from what I'm hearing so far, it does seem like they're only split by a narrow margin in terms of weightiness and impact. So let's, let's get into the weeds a little bit here. Now, I'm pouring over precedent here, namely the law of Route 10.2.5, and it says, whenever a garden is removed, the cult must discard a random card. Uh, So, any garden that is removed is tied to the loss of a card. So, if, for example, two gardens were removed in one turn, they would discard two cards, Mm -hmm. right? But if I look over here at the duchy, uh, 12.2.3 under the price of failure, it says whenever any number... Of duchy buildings are removed. So I think this, you know, we have to look at this in a bit of more granularity. But if uh, there's one battle and multiple duchy buildings are removed, they still only, only discard one random card and lose one suede minister, correct? Uh, and remove a crown from the game. You're correct, Your Honor. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm glad you brought this up, Your Honor, because I'd like to point the court's attention to the to the strategy of the lizard cult. The Lizard Cult wants to take up as few clearings as possible because they have trouble controlling multiple clearings. They're already spread thin on what they're able to do. Therefore, they are prioritizing clearings with multiple building slots, meaning the chances of them losing two gardens in one instance is much higher than 
a normal faction. Objection, Your Honor. Speculation. I mean, aren't we all looking for multiple building slots for us larger factions? I know he's not a red faction, but come on. I am so inclined to sustain because of the that sounds like a you problem rule that I have in this court. (laughs) But I must remind the public defender, we have to consider all the factors that are subjectively related in the context of the faction. And I think that the faction strategy is an integral component uh, of itself, right? I couldn't be in more agreement, Your Honor. I mean, I'm not immune to sympathizing with the plight of the lizards and uh, their self-consciousness about when they lose a garden. I completely understand what they have to go through. And it absolutely is an, uh, an advantageous thing for them to have clearings with multiple building slots. That's kind of true for everybody as we've gone over. I will say, though, that the circumstances with which they would lose those gardens generally involves the losing of lizards themselves that were there protecting them. And the same applies to moles when moles lose their buildings. The thing is, though, is moles go back to the supply, whereas lizards tend to go to the special acolytes box to be used for further engine advancement in those cases. So that's another circumstance we should keep in mind. Objection, Your Honor. What about raise tokens, revolts, bombs, favors, and scorched earth? For that, the lizard cult does not receive any acolytes and still suffers fear of fail- faith. I agree, I agree, Your Honor. That's why I said generally. I just found five exceptions to your generally. But do not bombs affect all in this woodland? Do not favors impact all denizens? Not equally, Your Honor. Not (laughs) equally. Well, if we're talking about sheer numbers, then I think we need to address the amount of uh, detrimental effects that come from each of these things. As we've said before, the price of uh, failure takes three things away from the moles, whereas the lizards just suffer one effect. Again, not discounting the lizards' uh, hindrance to their engine, but losing a card is kind of the same situation as the moles, but the moles get two more hindrances as well. Objection, Your Honor. Crowns barely count. Crowns, <laughs> who gives a shit about crowns? Sorry, uh, I should have Okay, uh, first off, Your All Honor, right, are we allowing this in the courtroom? <laughs> Look, if, if you're going to speak that way in this court, you get, you get one warning, and then you're going to be held in contempt of court. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm going to have the bailiff put peppermint creamer in your coffee from now on. You understand? One more infraction. Just try me. I'm so mad. Your Honor, I would like... But impartial. I would like to paint you a picture. All right. Of what it looks like to recover from both of these punitive mechanisms. All right? The moles will lose a card. And I have all the sympathy in the world for losing cards. (laughs) However, they only lose one card. And the ability to re-sway a minister if they were to sway the same minister three times, right? What I want to point out is that the moles can re-sway that minister four points. They gain points when they sway as well as an action. If my two gardens were removed and therefore all my lizards, even if I had acolytes... It is going to take five to seven actions in the same suit to get back to the same scoring potential I had before I lost them. I'm going to need at least three to four warriors to protect two gardens and use a card to score. The idea that I could come back from this in less than two turns or three turns is absurd. I want to identify an issue with this line of argument. 
Namely, that given the exceptions you mentioned, raise tokens, favor, revolt, etc., would it not be the case that in an instance where an effect removed the gardens but left the warriors, that the rule of that clearing would allow the rebuilding of said gardens with a little more ease, more quickly, thus returning to that scoring potential in a much shorter timeline. Whereas, if the removal of those gardens was preceded by a battle, sort of the other avenue to reach that state, that then you would have acolytes to kind of help you return to that board state and rebuild those gardens, perhaps through Sanctify, which requires no cards. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. If I were to get four acolytes for the four warriors that were defending my clearing and the table let the outcast be the same as the gardens that were removed and it was hated, then I could spend four acolytes sanctifying two thing, two buildings that are now undefended. In the instance of the raise token, I hear you. Uh, I could still have my four warriors there. I'm just missing the gardens. I just hope that the three cards I have in my turn are suited, suited, and score. I'm not going to disagree with much with what Sam said there besides his tone, which I very much disagree <laughs> with. Um, Sustained. But the amount, of, the amount of actions that he's talking about are something that's not easily attainable for the moles. And generally, if it is, it's from those swayed ministers, which, again, we lose every time. The price of failure is triggered. You lose one. This is true. But it's not often that they have a whole lot of them. The downside to losing a crown is that you can't use that crown again for points and to re-sway. Now, you're going to ask, of course, why would you need more crowns? You have three of each type. But when you also lose a card, not on your turn, which is generally when this is happening, you're not going to draw more cards to have another higher swaying go on. So you can't necessarily go get one of those four-point sways. You might need to rely on yet another two-point sway or something, or a one, or yeah, another lower-point sway, uh, which you would need more the, rounds for. Quick question. Um, how many cards do you lose? Uh, the same amount you do. One. No, no you lose <laughs> one. I would lose two. Wait, uh, why would you lose two? If I lost two gardens. Which Your is, Honor, the, what we the, said is the most li- the most likely scenario. I did not say that. I don't think that it's the most likely scenario that you lose two gardens. I'm talking about the price of failure versus the fear of the faithful, I'm which is you to lose remind a card. The council that we did speak earlier that a faction strategy is inherent to itself, and its expression is an asymmetric faction. <laughs> and I think this would apply in the case of the lizard simply because in the world. Commonly, you will find that gardens travel in pairs. Your Honor, excuse my hubris, but we are not arguing how often this effect happens. We're arguing the effect and its detriment within its red ability. If it happens multiple times, then I should be able to apply my rules multiple times as well. I concede the fact that fear of faith, uh, fear of the faithful will occur more often. I'm saying that because it occurs more often, it's less detrimental than the price of failure, which occurs less often, but is worse. Let me see if I'm understanding the point of view of... The scope of this case that we laid out in the beginning, which is what is worse, not which happens more. No, my argument is not that it happens more. My argument is that when it happens, I'm more uh, the lizards are more likely to lose two cards and the moles are more likely to lose one. Well, the moles will lose one. The the lizards lose one. They lose one per garden. Per time that this occurs. No. Right? Per garden. So if one battle takes out two gardens, I lose two cards. 
If you have a battle that but takes this place, this effect happens twice. It's when a garden's removed, and then again when a garden right. is removed. Correct. So Correct. it's happening two times. Right. Okay. Does fear of the f- okay? Then also for our example, the the price of failure should happen two times to be compared. No, 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 no. Because yours takes multiple battle actions. Mine just takes one. Not necessarily. Not it, it also, does. I can get bombed just like you can. I can also suffer but from that, the, the suffer. You suffer it one time from a bomb. I suffer it twice from a bomb. I understand why you're saying a, a clearing or a battle can make this occur more often. I'm still saying we're comparing just the things as alone effects. I think you've both made pretty clear points about this. I think the thing to weigh is exactly what we're discussing. In the context of a game, which is worse, right? Because in isolation, we can count and see how detrimental these things are. But ultimately, no one's interested in these things in isolation. We're interested in them because they happen in the context of a game. So in the context of a you know fairly standard game, which has a huge asterisk after it, I understand, I have to say that from what I'm hearing... It seems like the timeline for recovery is significantly longer for the lizards than it is for the moles. Now, we have to weigh that against the sheer amount of material that the moles lose due to price of failure. Losing a suede minister is not only about points. It certainly isn't about the crowns, because that restriction is something that in a regular game of root we don't run into that often, but it is a factor. The thing that's important there is you sway ministers after you take actions from your swayed ministers. Right. Much in the same way that recruit and anoint have that little order of operations kind of fine point there. So do taking actions with swayed ministers uh, and swaying them. So if you lose a swayed minister, you actually also lose that action for the upcoming turn. So I think you got to keep that in mind too, because if the moles are going to rebuild like the lizards are going to rebuild, they face restrictions as well. Like it's it's not always a clear path forward in the context of a real game. I want to reiterate that Sam makes a good point about how cards are lizards' actions, but cards are also the, the underground duchies' actions because they use cards to sway ministers to get more actions. And we only have two as a base in our daylight. And so you're right. It takes a lot. It takes us maybe technically less quote unquote actions to get our thing back up again. But we have less access to those actions on a turn. So if we're talking about number of times things occur on a turn, then that should be factored in as well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I would like to point out (laughs) that the moles lose one card. This is what I was getting at. The moles lose one card when press of failure triggers. So then you would have, on a normal hand, Jake, how many cards would you be left with? Uh, what's a normal hand? What, I, this <laughs> oh is my such god. A, s- a normal hand in root is five cards. Oh, then I feel four like cards. Get, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Right? Like, that's the hand max. I feel like moles that's get up max? to the hand max. I don't, again, I feel like these examples are always very beneficial context-wise. But yeah, sure, four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have four. And what is the um, price of the highest lord that you have to sway how many cards yeah four yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah so, so just you can't to point spend any of those cards for their crafting ability to dig yes you can because you craft in the evening uh, that's right okay. after Fair. swaying the cards would return to the hand so you Sustained. can't so so you can't use that card to dig which is like right. one of their like most important get out on the board abilities not to mention just move warriors 
um, and you can't use the card for what it is if it's something that you'd play in a turn, right? So like, uh, I'm gonna throw this out there as well. If we're gonna do the, isn't it the case that when you lose garden, you lose another garden? Isn't it the case that when you lose a mole building, you also lose a tunnel? That's true. That's true. Sure. I, I, yeah. Additionally, like when we lose a uh, a building, we're losing at least a recruit uh, or a, a mole within the recruit or a card draw as well. Now, I mean, that's kind of a wash because a lot of people lose card draws when they lose buildings, but that's yeah. only in one column for the lizards, whereas they have a lot more gardens on the field potentially than will ever have buildings. So even by nature, they're going to lose. They're going to suffer this effect more often. I think this might be sort of somewhat useful. Uh, both effects force the discard of a card. What are the things that, uh, like, how valuable are cards to these factions kind of com in comparison? And I know that's going to be a little bit difficult to find an objective answer to, but I'm curious to know about, like, the menu of options you have with any given card. There, I would say it's more immediately obvious when playing the Lizards. You know, because they're right there. It's the action they can do. It makes sense. You can see how the mechanism goes. But with the moles, it's multiple steps. Okay, right. But I am interested in the in the specific actions that the cards allow you to take. Like, what is the value of a card to a mole? Besides, besides um, crafting it, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Right. You've mentioned dig. You've mentioned building buildings, swaying ministers. You've got the ba those it's are really the building three, it's those right? two no you're right it's those two and i guess ambush but like uh you don't really ambush on your turn so that doesn't really occur uh so you're right it's really build and dig those are the two applications and then sway uh, or excuse me um craft happens because it happens in the evening and you've retrieved that card presumably yep. um that's not true for birds just like it's not true for the old lizard so we both have that issue no i get lizard i get birds back you do? Yeah. Oh, I can that's only, nice. Yeah, I just can't use birds for anything other than giving me one acolyte that I have to wait until next turn to hopefully The sacrifice use. ability, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It is confusing that it's called sacrifice, and yet you get to keep the card. Oh, yeah. played it wrong so many times at the beginning, just for flavor. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. I mean, swaying is necessary to the moles, would never say that. I just know that it's going to take way, way more to recover from the fear of failure then or <laughs> i keep doing it from the fear of the faithful we sway at the end of daylight we don't get to use those actions we don't yeah, I, I i lose two actions you lose one action you can't keep making that the crux of your argument because it only occurs multiple times right like what i'm saying is is we only gain action mechanisms at the end of our turn you can gain your Same. action mechanisms but if you when were losing warriors cards. on acolytes and stuff like that, that's not true because you're going to start back up with them again. Right. But I, I think that the value of acolytes, uh, we need to talk about the value of acolytes because right. there is a two thirds chance if we assume that it's just all up to chance that my acolytes are not in the right spot. Right. Oh, you're saying, OK, yes, I understand. Because I mean, can only use them in hated outcast clearance. So acolytes, I don't feel like. Yes, they. we all remember the time where the lizards used the acolytes to screw them over by like converting one of their buildings or doing something. Wait, why? But it's not a reliable way to bounce back necessarily from a specific attack, right? If I lose my fox gardens, if I don't have a fox hated outcast suit, not a lot I can do. Maybe I could and march. And a building in a fox clearing with which to sanctify. Right, right, yeah. Why, why hated? 
Uh, just just because otherwise it it becomes even more expensive. You mean that's the price? No, that is the price. It becomes cheaper if it's hated. You're right. framing these things so conveniently to your argument, which is just like I can only do lawyer. it if it's hated. But that's n- but you are lying. Then objection. That's not true. He can do it if it's not hated. He can do it if it's an outcast. Um, I'm gonna disallow. Uh, jury, imagine you didn't hear the last bit of this framing here. So you don't want to have to show the video. It's very costly. If I lose four, oh, great. Let's have this argument. If I lose four warriors and it is not hated, then every convert costs me two. I can convert two warriors or I could convert one building. I could sanctify one building. I'm not saying these things aren't bad, Sam, but if I lose a minister and I only have, okay, if I have my four cards in my hand, I can't dig or build to sway another high-level minister. We both suffer bad things. I'm not contesting that. (laughs) But you're saying, like, you can't do the ultimate thing that your faction does. You have to take a turn to take, like, where you get a middle thing and you get to dig. Like, I don't get to do anything. It's total rebuild mode, and I can't even score that turn. If you consider it the ultimate thing I do, then you have to put more weight on the the price of failure because I lose my ultimate thing every time I get uh, a building removed. Right, and you get points for putting it back. Not if I don't have crowns left. Yeah, that's true. You're you're max three per game, but I just feel like that's uh, the, the crown thing. It's minor, but it is there, especially yeah. given that you have less cards when you come around to sway again. I I, I think it's a moot point. I think we're equally. Uh, stuck up a creek a little bit when it comes to our rebuilding mechanism there. All right. I didn't want to have to do this. Yeah, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'd like to call Cole Worley to the stand. <laughs> oh my God. Jake, I've, yeah, got, okay. I've got... Bring um, forth your witness. I've got, I've got <laughs> this thing here from the most recent design diaries, Jake, because at 101.50, Cole did answer my question where I said, what do you think is worse, fear of the faithful or price of failure? He did say Fear of the Faithful. He says it's too brutal for the lizards to recover from. No con- no other context beyond that? It, you know, it was about, the whole thing was about, like, their games and their stuff. I was very surprised he answered the question at all. <laughs> he did not weigh in <laughs> in a meaningful way, but he did give me the answer. I'd I like wanted. to submit that last sentence for the record, please, Your yeah. Honor, <laughs> that he didn't weigh in in any meaningful way. Uh, yeah, just go ahead and write it down twice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That seems fine. All right. All right. Yep, Judge noted. Kyle, I feel like this is in your hands at this point. Uh, I mean, here's what I'm going to say. I think the the testimony from Cole is both both good and bad for Fear of the Faith. <laughs> I was worried about that. I'm like, all we do is disagree with Cole's takes, and then I'm citing him as, like, the ultimate like, I don't I'd like to reference Eerie Emigre, please. <laughs> <laughs> exhibit e. Exhibit A. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that this leaves things equally murky uh, for me in terms of judging this from, from a... <laughs> objective perspective i i think the 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 insight of the designer is something that's very hard to write off because cole Worley, who's who's saying that price of failure is not as bad as fear of the faithful i mean you gotta think that cole has test driven a number of different versions of these things and would have arguably one of the best kind of 
mind for setting up a restriction or what are we calling it? a punitive mechanism. So I, I think his opinion is valuable in that sense. But I feel like we have a slightly different perspective because we only are engaged in the like playing and analyzing of actual games over a long period of time mm-hmm. versus the creation of the faction. 100%. I feel like it's you know two different ends of the telescope for sure. Uh, and just because Cole has one view of it doesn't mean that's going to be the same view of, of the players. I think on reflection, the determining factor that has weighed most heavily in my final judgment over this issue is the outcast. The thing is, if, if the outcast did not exist, the lizards would have most likely more control over their ability to come back and would be able to use the remaining cards efficiently. The difference I'm noticing is that the duchy, when they lose a card, they still get whatever's in the rest of their hand, however many cards that is. They get it's to always use four. that. It's always four, right, the- Sam? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he held up, he held up four think- fingers, everybody, just so you know, he assumed four, because that's what we always assume the most have. Look, in my, in my opinion that I'm writing up here, I'm using extremely neutral language. I'm being very careful to avoid naming a specific number here, because I, I think that the point <laughs> remains true regardless of the number of cards. If the duchy has two cards left in their hand they can still use those two cards as efficiently as it is possible to use them. There is no outside restriction that is, like, based on their faction player board that is going to, like, randomly hold them back or be totally out of their control. The Outcast, to me, is an example of this force that it's intrinsic to the lizards, but it's completely out of their control. They can only influence it somewhat. So, Your Honor, would it be more fair to say that fear of the faithful uh, and the outcast mechanism are worse than the price of failure? Because that seems to be the stipulating factor. I mean, because that's also just a part of their core mechanism. If we could talk about the part of Mole's core mechanism, which we don't seem to be discussing. Yeah, yeah. What What's the bad part about Mole's core, core mechanism? Uh, the fact that they can only um, add new actions into their repertoire uh, once per turn at the end of their turn. Here's the thing. I think both factions lose actions in different ways. And I think it takes about the same amount of time for them to recover the actions. Right. It takes a full turn to sway a minister and then to use that minister's action mm-hmm. added onto your economy. Mm-hmm. Whereas it takes a full turn for the lizards to replenish their hand. Remember, too, that to sway, I have to have moles in clearings that match those cards, which I, I concede is a little bit easier to do than arranging the discard pile in your favor, but it's still a hoop that I have to jump through, and a pretty specific one, g- granted the cards I have in my hand, which, of course, is always four, but it's still there. The thing is, is the lizards also have territorial considerations. Their board presence is a factor in their ability to recover, just like it's true for the moles. So I think that those two two points are pretty close. If not exactly even, they're pretty close. So I think in my opinion, if you were to take them in isolation, price of failure is obviously more detrimental than fear of the faithful. In isolation, one to one. But in actual life, in real games of Root, Gardens travel in pairs. We see it in almost every game that features the lizards. It's a a core 
kind of imperative of the lizard strategy to maintain something like that. I, I think that Fear of the Faithful, in its most usual application, tends to be slightly worse for the lizards because of its interaction with the outcast as well. It's worse. Its uh, application being two Fear of the Faithfuls are worse than yeah, one prize two, or failure. Well, two, two Fear of the Faithfuls plus an unfavorable outcast, I think is one of the most damaging scenarios I can imagine in a game mm -hmm, of Root. Mm -hmm. I think Price of Failure is slightly easier to mitigate. Why? Two reasons. The remaining hand cards for the duchy can be used in whatever the most efficient way is possible, no matter what. Uh, what if you don't have what if you don't have moles in the clearings you need and you don't have the actions to get them there? Well, you can use those cards as efficiently as it is possible to use. You With can the build outcast, a, a citadel to make sure that you do have more moles for next turn. Next right? turn. Right. I, I don't understand you how they can the be used. You think the lizards are bouncing back? I'm, I, I'm sorry. I don't, maybe I misunderstood. You said that those cards can be used in the best way possible no matter what. That doesn't seem to be no matter what if they need to be in certain clearings for them to be used. Uh, I... Correct, correct. And and the remaining lizard hand cards can be used as efficiently as is possible as well. I think that actually that statement applies to both. But the, the problem with the outcast is that while the moles have a little bit of comeback and the fact that they automatically recruit two in the burrow and they have two daylight actions kind of automatically, plus whatever ministers remain, tends to be a little bit easier to mitigate than... Uh, just being like blanket reduced in terms of your actions and that part of your comeback mechanic being conspiracies is really based on something that's co almost completely out of the lizard's control. And the, the kind of cruel cherry on top here for the lizards is discarding a random card impacts the outcast in a way that you have no control over. So I, I think there's a little bit of a like twist of the dagger there for the lizards that isn't quite the same for the moles because I mean losing a crown is not the same, uh, the same level of, of loss there. Your Honor, while I will of course concede to whatever the court decides, um, is there an appeals court? Because I feel <laughs> like the objectives have changed from one fear of the faithful to two fear of the faithful. And well, we we just described this earlier in the opinion but i'm happy to restate it for you can you bring up page 12 <laughs> reread page 12 <clears throat> although if you consider in isolation the price of failure versus the fear of the faithful the price of failure is a loss of more material but in it thank you that's enough any questions oh stenographer jane i love her <laughs> judge I think you have ruled justly and fairly here, and I appreciate all that you've done. Um, and I think the debate rages on. Um, all right. I will expect that envelope full of cash uh, after the... Uh, don't write that down. No, strike it. Strike it from the record. Well, Jake, you, you took that on the chin. You did very well. And like all the things that we discuss on this podcast, I can't wait for you to play the lizards experience fear of the faithful and somehow beat us with it anyway oh my so. god I, well thank you i really enjoyed this debate it was a blast i i want to reiterate how much i agree fear of the faithful really really sucks and yeah i do look forward to beating you after suffering <laughs> yeah we'll see mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Well, on that note, I'll be outside answering questions from the press if there are any. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be receiving a call from the Woodland Alliance later on. Yeah. Uh, And that call might sound a little something like... Root! Root! Root!